Well, if you look at Ruth, there's one thing you pick up on right away. Uh, the book of Ruth is about a woman named Ruth. Uh, but it's more important than that. It is a story within a greater story. It is a story of a coming Redeemer, a coming Savior. It's a story of redeeming love. The word redemption, Redeemer, or to be redeemed is mentioned some 20 plus times in the book of Ruth. Uh, the name of the book of Ruth is quite surprising, and here's why it's surprising. Ruth was a Moabite. Five, ta- five times Ruth is referred to here as Ruth the Moabite. That may not mean much to you, but hopefully after we finish studying the book of Ruth, it will mean a whole lot more than it ever has before. Ruth is the only uh, Old Testament book named after someone who is not an Israelite. Ruth is... Only uh, one of two books in the Old Testament named after a woman. Who's the other one, church? Esther. Ruth is mentioned one other time in the Bible. And that's in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's very important when we see her name mentioned there in the Gospel of Matthew. There she is listed in the ancestry of Jesus. And that's very important for us to know and understand. And hopefully we'll get to that as we progress to the book of Ruth. So why would we study the book of Ruth, church? Well, for one reason, most importantly, it's in the Bible. That's a good reason for us to study. It shows us the history of salvation. In Ruth, you'll see how God is working His plan throughout history to bring about a Savior. And that Savior being Jesus. The message of Ruth cannot be understood apart from Jesus. You can't read Ruth apart from... From the gospel. It points us to Christ. Studying Ruth will enable us to understand Jesus and the entire Bible. Ruth teaches us about divine providence. It teaches us that God is in control of all circumstances. There is nothing outside the scope of God's providence. And much like Jonah, Ruth illustrates us, for us, the worldwide mercy of God. It shows us the heart of God, the nations, for the people of this world. And lastly, Ruth shows us, and listen to me carefully, Ruth shows us what genuine faith looks like. In chapter 1, we're going to see this very clearly. All of that to say, the book of Ruth ultimately points us to Jesus. How do we know that, church? Remember when we did uh, our study in the book of Jonah, I took you to Luke chapter 24, and we read these words, and he said to them, Uh, being Jesus, said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Then He said to them, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus said the whole Old Testament, of which Ruth is a part, bears witness to Him as Savior, who suffers for the salvation of the peoples of the world. And for this reason, the book of Ruth was rightly read and studied as a means of pointing us to the unfolding plan of God to redeem fallen man from his sin. When we read the book of Ruth, hopefully when we get through studying the book of Ruth, we will see a better, clearer picture of God's sovereign providential control of the salvation history of this world and how Ruth is pointing us to something something greater than just a famine and a woman who happens to marry a name Boaz and they have a son. There's much more going on here. So the theme for the whole book of Ruth is this. God's providence to bring about redeeming love. God's providence, 
God's control to bring about redeeming love. That's what's going on here in the book of Ruth. Now you could word that other ways and, and replace it with other words, but pretty much that's what's going on. God's providence to bring about redeeming love, salvation. So, in chapter 1, within that big theme, here's the theme of chapter 1. God working in the worst of times. God working in the worst of times. If you're looking for an outline, this is going to be extremely simple. Verses 1 through 5, what's going on? The famine, or the problem, whatever you would like to call it. The famine, the problem. Verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Verse 1 gives us the setting of Ruth, which is very important for us to know this. The story of the book of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. This was a 400-year period of time after Israel entered the promised land and before there was ever a king established in the nation of Israel. Roughly 1500 B.C. to about 1100 B.C. Verse 1 is telling us something which is very, extremely important to helping us understand the situation going on in the book of Ruth. If you were to read the book of Judges, here's what you would see. By the way, in the latter part, the last verse of the book of Judges, if you were to turn one page over in your Bible, the last verse, here's what you see. So, what's going on is taking place when? In the days when the judges ruled. The last verse in the book of Judges says, Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds sort of a lot, a lot the day we live in, right? The Bible is not outdated, folks. It's not antiquated. Um, whatever you want to do is fine. Whatever you think is good for you, that's okay. Everyone should do as they want. No one should have a sense of accountability to God or each other. You just do whatever you want to do. As the old saying goes a few years ago, if it feels good, you just do it. Whatever, whatever you want to do, and that's what's going on. Every man did what was right in whose eyes. Whatever's good for you is good for you. Whatever's true for you is true for you. That's the day we live in. And it's the same thing going on in the day of Ruth. So these are dark days, Right? Now, these are, were days of rebellion in Israel, days in which God's people had drifted away from God. And the people of God would sin. In the book of Judges, here's what's going on. They call it a, uh, most people refer to it as a, a, a cycle. The people would sin, and when, when you sin against God, what happens? Judgment comes, He would judge His people, punish them. Normally some country would come and you know, beat them up, and there'd be a war, and the people would say, Oh no, they would cry out for, for mercy and God's forgiveness, and God would send a judge. Uh, all through the book of Judges, he would raise these people up, and the people would repent, and the judge would lead them. And then guess what? A period of time would go by, and sin, cry to God, God forgives, raise it. All through the book of Judges, that's what's going on. And then when you get to the end of the book, it says, every man just did what was right in his own eyes. So that's what's going on here in the book of Ruth. This was the cycle of life that was going on. What the book of Ruth does for us is it gives us a glimpse of God and His providence working during the worst of times. Ruth shines a bright light in a dark time in the history of the world. Notice in verse 1 there, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. There was a physical famine going on in Israel. But what other kind of famine was going on? A spiritual famine. A lack of rain had led to a lack of crops, which leads to what? You guys who farm, a lack of food. There was a spiritual famine as well. I say that because everyone did what was right in their own eyes, which leads to punishment from God, which leads to the famine that's going on here. 
So here we see people who are hungry. Now, this may be hard for you and I to understand what it means to be hungry. Now, some of us, we go a day or so and we don't eat breakfast or lunch and by 4 or 5 o'clock, what do we say? I'm starving. This is a famine, folks. This is a famine. It's hard for us to understand. And, you know, we can't comprehend this. Our problem is not what will we eat, but it's where will we eat, right? That's us in the time we live. We can't imagine what it's like to go hungry, to go through a famine, right? Now, some of you older folks in here, I've heard my daddy tell stories back in the day when, you know, it was tight. Didn't have a whole lot, but you never, there's never a famine, right? There was never like, we went days and weeks without food and we, we didn't have any idea where we were going to get it. And just a quick application here. We live in a place of plenty, right? And we don't even comprehend this and think about this. How many of you ever go to the grocery store and you reach to the shelf to get something and you, you never think because you look down the aisle, like, just say the bread aisle. You go down the bread aisle and you look for a loaf of bread. How many kinds of bread are there there? The whole, the whole aisle. We never give a thought to this food here. Most of the time, if our brand's not there, we do what? <laughs> you know, and particularly if you go to Walmart, they'll have it for about six months and all of a sudden they don't have it no more and you've got to get something else. So we, we gripe because they don't have our brand of bread. You know, I do, I'm telling you, we and David got this particular bread we like and when they don't have it, it's like, oh, i got to get this kind. But we never give thought. We go down these aisles and there's food there and we, we never think. What would it be like one day to come in here and just turn down this aisle and there's sort of like the, when the snow comes, right? <laughs> what if we're like that every day? That's what's going on here. When you reach for an item in the grocery store, here's what you need to do. Thank you, Lord, that there's bread on the shelf. Thank you, Lord, that there's milk in the cooler. And whatever else. You ever done that? Most of the time we're just like, we're just sliding off in the cart and we're, we're, we're going like crazy to get in there and get out. And then when you get to Walmart, there's two lines open and there's a thousand people trying to check out. And so, yeah, I knew I'd get an amen out of that. So, But, you know, even in a time of desperate need, we can see here in Ruth that God does something wonderful in a time of desperation. Notice in verses 1 and 2, And a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. In the name of his wife Naomi, the names of his sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. In the book of Ruth, there, there are these several of these subtle ironies that's going on. We read things and we just see words, but there's some ironies going on, several of them in the book of Ruth. Verse 1 mentions that Bethlehem, they left Bethlehem. Does anybody know what the name Bethlehem means? House of bread. What's going on? Famine. In the house of bread, there's famine. Bethlehem is also known as what? The place where Jesus comes from. And Jesus is called in the Gospel of John, what? The bread of life. Notice in verse 1, a man from Bethlehem went to sojourn in Moab. Notice his name, Elimelech. His name means, my God is king. The irony here is that Elimelech does not act like God is his king. Now, how do we know that? Well, let's talk about Naomi. I've got to give you the meanings of these names because it's going to make a, a difference as we go through. Naomi's name means pleasant. Sweetie pie. You know, might call her. She's pleasant. Two sons were Malon, and his name means sickly. 
and Kilion, dying or pining away. When you go to the Bible to look for names for your children, this would not be two that you'd want to pick out for your children. This family was from the city of Bethlehem and the region of Judea, which is in Israel. Verse 1 says they left Israel, the land of the people of God, and went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Sojourn means what? Temporarily. For a little while. However, verse 2 says they what? They remained in Moab. Here's the problem. So God is my king, leaves Israel, and he takes his family to Moab. They move to Moab, and moving to Moab, in case you're wondering, is not good. Why? Because God's people were specifically told by God, do not go to Moab. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 19, verse 30, we read about the origin of Moab. Most of you are familiar with this. The people of Moab came from the incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughters. Verses 36 and 37 says, The daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. The Moabites were enemies of Israel. Moab was known for all kinds of rampant living, sexual immorality. The Moabites worshipped the false god Chemos, which required them to carry out human sacrifices. So Moab, are you getting the picture of what Moab's like? God says, don't go there. So we have this picture of a man named Elimelech. God is my king, and he takes his family away from the place God has put them to a place God says not to go, and he's looking for food. Now, looking for food is not the problem. Going to Moab to look for food was the problem. Remember, Elimelech didn't say, stay there temporarily. He went to sojourn, but how long did they stay there? They remained there. Look at verse 3. Here we have... Uh, some grief. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Why did Elimelech move and go looking for food? So he would not die. He didn't want to die. Verse 3, and she was left with her two sons. Naomi still has her sons. Her husband's died, she still has her sons. Verse 4. They took Moabite wives. This problem's getting worse. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Again, Elimelech planned to, what? Go get some bread, come back home. Sojourn. Verse 5. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. It's a pretty devastating situation for Naomi, right? She's left with no husband and no sons. There's, there's no heir. There's no one left to carry on the family name. The men had died and so had their names. The family is on the brink of ceasing to exist. And now Naomi is left with two idolatrous, pagan, Moabite daughters-in-law. See, the author is... He's writing this way for real. He's piling up one disaster upon another, giving us a real sense of the shock that one person should be called to suffer so much. Put yourself in Naomi's shoes. Can you imagine what's going on? All this um, grief and suffering she's going through. We can relate to the book of Ruth because this is the world we live in today sometimes, is it not? Both in Ruth's day and our day, we face situations of death and suffering. Do we not? Some of us, our families, have experienced a great deal of suffering and heartache, loss of loved ones. Why is that? 
It's because we live in a broken, fallen world. That's why. In Genesis chapter 3, we know the story of Adam and Eve. They disobeyed God, right? And upon that disobedience, what? Sin came into the world, and with that sin came what? Death. God, because of disobedience and sin, cursed His world with death. Physical death, but it's also a spiritual death that takes place. That's why we have all that we have going on in our world. That's why people do what is right in their own eyes. And why we have uh, sorrow and heartache and, and cancer and people dying and people being murdered because people are sinful doing what is right in their own eyes. That's why we have the world that we have. It's a sinful world. Look at verse 6. Here we see the providence of God. So you have the famine. Then you have the providence of God. Look at verse 6. God's mentioned for the first time in the book of Ruth. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth get up. And where do they go? They head for Israel. They're leaving Moab. Why? She heard as she was in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. News gets to Naomi. And it wasn't by Facebook or Twitter. I don't know how it got there. But she got word. She hears that famine is over. Notice in verse 6 there the words, The Lord. Most translations, and I didn't check this to verify, the word Lord is what? In all caps. Lord here is the Hebrew word Yahweh. When they capitalize it, all the letters, it's Yahweh. God is mentioned 23 times in Ruth. If you read carefully the book of Ruth, you'll see that the author only mentions God twice. Here, and in chapter 4, verse 13, and we're headed that way. It's very important what he's doing. The author wants us to see that God is in the middle of the story. He mentions him at the beginning. And he mentions him at the end. He uses the word Yahweh. God gives food, chapter 1, and in chapter 4, God gives a son. God is good. God is in control. The author wants us to know that the reason there's food in Bethlehem is that God has visited the people. God has not abandoned His people. He says God has come to His people. He's not abandoned them. Now this is a a lot like our lives. We can't see God working, and we don't know the whole story, but we must trust Him. All of life is traced directly by the hand of God. All of life. And I want want to clarify something I, I said last week. My wife, I asked her to critique my sermons, and last week she pointed out something to me that I need to clarify. I said last week about God being in control when we have problems in our life, when we have children who are wavered, when we have marriage problems in our life. God is in control. And here's what I want you to understand. God being in control doesn't mean that He's the one who sends trouble in our lives. He decrees it. He allows the trouble to come in our lives, but He's never the source the cause of sin and evil in our lives. But He is the one who takes the sin and evil and He works good out of it for our lives. Does everyone understand? And she was right. I I didn't clarify that. God allows things to come in our life, but He's not the source of those things. He knows they're coming. They don't catch Him off guard. God's not wringing His hands. What am I going to do? He knows it's coming. He allows it. Now, I know your question is, well, preacher, we want to know why He allows it. That's the secret part of God's will that we don't know. And I'm not about to tell you that I know that because... I don't. 
God is at work in the worst of times. This is what the book of Ruth is teaching us. Ruth shows us how the Lord reigns over all things and that He is at work in the details of our lives. All the details of our lives. Notice again in verse 6, it says, The Lord visited. The Lord had visited His people. When God visits His people in Scripture, He does so either one of two ways. One, He's coming to judge. Or what's the other? He's coming to bless. Judgment or blessing. When used with reference to blessing, it often has to do in the Bible with giving children. In Genesis chapter uh, 21, verse 1, Sarah gives birth. And the verse says, The Lord visited Sarah. Lord, there's Yahweh. And He visited. He, he gave the blessing of children. First Samuel 2.21, speaking of a woman named Hannah. The verse says, The Lord, all caps, visited Hannah. God comes to the aid of His people. The blessing there of children. The author uses a word here. And you might be saying, Why are you pointing this word visited out? The majority of the time it has to deal with God blessing and visiting and giving children. The original readers would have heard this reading the book of Ruth and that word would have caught their attention. Very closely they would have paid attention to this. Yes, the Lord has visited with food, but what about Ruth? She has no husband, no children. And when we get to chapter 4... We see Ruth marry Boaz, and then God visits them. Yahweh visits them and gives them a son. And from that lineage will come King David, but also the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Ruth the Moabite, a pagan, ungodly woman, gives birth to who? Or a a descendant which will come King David, which will ultimately come the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we're going to get there and we're going to talk about that as we go through the book of Ruth. Look now at verses 7 through 14. And what we see here, if you're looking for an outline, is the decision. The decision. Verses 7 and 8. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Notice Naomi's words to Orpah and Ruth. Verse 8. Go, return each of you to where? Her mother's house. Naomi wants them to go home. Normally going home in Scripture is referred to going to your father's house. So why do we have go to your mother's house? Naomi says return to your mother's house uh, like I said, in other places, uh, you normally see, go to your father's house. But in other places, when we see the words mother's house, is referred to as the place where babies are conceived. It always refers, when you go to your mother's house, it's go to a place where babies are conceived. Naomi is saying, I want you to go home so that you can have children. You'll find a husband, go to your mother's house, you'll get married and you'll have children. And here's what, here's what Naomi's saying. There's nothing for you in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is Naomi's home. The people are Naomi's people. Orpah and Ruth were foreigners who would hardly be welcomed in Bethlehem because they're what? Moabite women. God says, don't go there. Those people will lead you away from me. And so Naomi's saying, 
You don't need to come here. You need to go back to your mother's house where there'll be a place of bearing children. Go back to your home. Find a husband. Have a family. Naomi is not ashamed of Orpah and Ruth. I think she cares for them. I, I really think she does. But she knows that a single Moabite woman in Israel is not going to fare very well. A single Moabite woman is not going to fare well. Notice Naomi's words in verse 8. May the Lord deal kindly with you. In verse 9, the Lord grant you that you may find rest. She, these are words expressing prayers uh, of Naomi to God for her two daughters-in-laws. Verse 9, then she kissed them and they lifted their voices and they wept. This gives us an idea of the emotion that's going on here. You have ten years of dying and suffering and these three ladies are left. They're in a very barren land. They've lost their husbands. There's no children. Um, going to Bethlehem is not promising for Orpah and Ruth. Neither is going home because they're not really sure how their family is going to welcome them back. Because you can see the situation they're in. Verse 10, And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Verse 11, Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? And here's her logic. Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? I'm not pregnant. I'm not going to give birth to any children that have the potential to be your husbands. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were, they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? She said, look, if I had a husband tonight and was conceiving children tonight, it's going to be 20 years at least before these men are grown. Are you going to wait that long? Naomi says, the only way, Naomi says, not only can I not give you husbands, in verse 13, but she says, God's hand is against me. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi says, if you go with me, here's, here's a sense of what she's saying. If you go with me, you get nothing. So just go back home, go to Moab. Notice that. Even though Naomi's bitter, she still has trust in God. Notice what she says. The hand of who has gone out against me? The Lord has gone out against me. She knows God's in control of the situation. And she still trusts God, but she, she's bitter. Now, here's the question I have for you. If you're Orpah or Ruth, what do you do? Do you go to Israel as a Moabite woman who has no husband? knowing those people are not going to care about you, or, or do you go back home and take your chances there? What do you do? It's sort of like, you, you ever heard that saying, your cleanest dirty shirt? Some of you guys are in college and they do your laundry and you know, it piled up and you get up one day, I don't have a shirt. So you just go through what's there and you go, that's the cleanest dirty shirt I've got, so that's what I'm going to wear today. Orphan Ruth, it's like, it's my cleanest, dirty shirt. What do I do? Israel, Moab. Verse 14. It's decision time. Then they lift up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. A lot of crying again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth did what? She clung to her mother-in-law. Now, here's something I want to point out to you. From a New Testament perspective, all right, New Testament perspective, 
We could say that Naomi put forth before Ruth and Orpah the cost of discipleship, of what it means to follow Jesus. Naomi puts forth, are you willing to forsake everything and come with me? We see a lack of commitment on Orpah's part, do we not? Some of you may be saying, well, Orpah made a wise decision. She made the most logical choice. I wouldn't want to go to Israel as a Moabite woman and and, and go there without a husband. I I wouldn't want to go back there. Here's a question I have for you, if if that's the way you're thinking. Who in here, before today, remembers Orpah? Right? She rejected what she saw as the road to emptiness, but at the same time, she only turned aside from the one road that could lead her to a life of lasting significance and meaning. Worldly wisdom shouted for Ruth to follow the way of Orpah. Follow the most likely way that will bring you the most success and significance. Think about Ruth. She was a nobody, an outsider, a Moabite of all things. There was nothing Jewish about Ruth. Are you getting the picture of Ruth? There's nothing Jewish about her. She's going back to the land of the Jewish people. She knew she would not be welcomed in Bethlehem. You know, I thought about Ruth would be as about as welcome in Bethlehem as a barbecue sandwich at a bar mitzvah. Anybody know what a bar mitzvah is? <laughs> You know what a bar mitzvah is? Everybody know what that is? Jewish boys, when they get to a certain age of adulthood, they have this big party. And here, they don't serve pork there. That's what I'm saying. Okay? But Ruth was not Orpah, nor was she Oprah. Verse 14 says, Ruth clung to Naomi. The word clung is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, to describe the bond that exists in marriage. It's a word that describes loyalty, a covenant commitment. Ruth was glued to her mother-in-law, and nothing or no one was going to pull her away. What's our marriage vow say? For better or worse, in sickness and health, commitment, clean. Verses 15 through 18. Here we have one of the most clear pictures in the Old Testament of conversion of someone putting their faith in God, their commitment in God. If you're outlining it, do this. Just put the faith. But here's what I want you to do. Faith is laying down your life. Faith is laying down your life. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Naomi says, Go the way of the world, Ruth. Follow Orpah. Verse 16, but Ruth said, we've heard these verses, right? Where have we heard them at most? Yeah, exactly. But you notice at the wedding, it's the spouses, are, they're never saying it to their mother-in-law, right? <laughs> but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Look at verse 16. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Your God is my God. The Lord Yahweh is my God. Your people shall be my people. Ruth is grafted into the people of God. She's a pagan, a Moabite, outside the covenant of God. 
And here she's brought, here's what, that's what it means to be a Christian. It means to turn from idols, to turn from sin to the living God. That's what Ruth done. My question for you today, have, have you done that? Have you turned from your idols, from your sin, and turned to the living God in faith? Ruth was a Moabite. She was full of idolatry. She was an outsider and she turns to God in faith. Ruth is saying, regardless of what happens in Bethlehem, I want to know and follow God. I don't care what happens there. I just know I want to follow God. Ruth never mentions anything about bread or a husband, does she? Instead, she says, your God is my God. Your people are my people. Notice verse 17. This is, a, this is a very important verse. Not that others aren't. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more so also, if anything but death parts me from you. Notice that Ruth is willing to be buried in Naomi's land. The land of Naomi's God, and not the God of the Moabites. In ancient times like this, gods were considered geographical deities. The Moabites had their God, but that God was confined to their geographical location. And other nations that had a God that followed a God was confined to the geographical location. Now, that's not correct, but the true God swear, church, He's everywhere. But their mindset was, my God is confined to my geographical location. When Ruth said, I will be buried in your land, what was she saying? I'm committing. I'll go as far as be buried in the land of your God because now he's what? My God. And your people are my people. With each statement, Ruth increases her commitment. She testifies to the extent of her commitment. Ruth was not merely getting a ticket to heaven. She was committing her life to God. That's what she meant. She said, I'll be buried there. I ain't holding nothing back. I'm sorry, I used ain't, right? That's not correct. She wasn't holding anything back. I'm throwing it all in. I'm committing. I'm putting faith in God. I'm throwing everything in. I'm not withholding anything. Verse 18, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Literally in the Hebrew, here's what that reads. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. Naomi's lack of words indicated the genuineness of Ruth's conversion of faith in God. Ruth was committed, and Naomi says, I can't say any more. She's all in. She's given everything. How do we, how do we think about that? That's what, that's what a conversion to Jesus looks like. It's not just a ticket to get to heaven. We do get to heaven. Y'all understand when I say that, I'm not dismissing the fact that getting heaven is good, right? But it's more than that. Becoming a Christian means laying down your life for Jesus. Jesus Himself said, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, what must we do, church? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And what's the words He follows that up with in Luke chapter 14? If you don't do those, you cannot be my disciple. That's what true conversion... Ruth is a picture of what it means to put our faith in Jesus. All in, commitment, follow Him. Verses 19 through 22. And we'll finish it up. If you're looking for an outline, just put bitterness and faithfulness. Bitterness and faithfulness. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. 
And the women said, Is this Naomi? You get a picture? There's a stir through the town. There's a buzz in town because Naomi and Ruth have come into town. And the women of the town look and say, Wow, is that Naomi? We remember when she was here, she went away with a husband and Malon and Kilion, and now she comes back and she's got this Moabite woman with her. Is this Naomi? Look at verses 20 and 21. Naomi said to them, Don't call me Naomi. What does Naomi's name mean? Pleasant. Don't call me Pleasant. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt with dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Pleasant. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. I'm just a bitter old woman. That's what you need to call me. Why did she say that? She said, because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord's brought me back empty. Don't call me that. The Bible says that we're not to get bitter, right? That's what it said. We're not to be bitter. So, what do you think of Naomi? She's bitter. What do you think of Naomi? Does she have a sinful attitude? Yes. But what should she do? I'm going to make some application here for us and and practical for us. Naomi is like... um, She's not like Christians. I think Naomi's completely honest. And here's what I mean. And This this morning as we were greeting one another, y'all would say, hey, how you doing? I'd say, fine, how are you doing? I, I wanted to laugh on the inside because of what I'm about to say. We come to church a lot of times with our halos screwed on real tight, right? And someone asks us how we're doing, and what do we say? Fine. Someone asks you how you're doing, and you say fine. And you ask them how they're doing, they respond back, fine. It's what's called church ping pong. (laughs) How are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm, I'm doing great today. We respond that we're fine, but on the inside, we're what? Things are going on, right? Naomi's honest. How are things going, Naomi? They ain't going good at all. Matter of fact, they're horrible. My husband's died. My son's died. I lived in Moab for ten years. My name's not pleasant. Just call me bitter. You know why I say Naomi's honest? She tells people about her struggles, right? You can't get help if you don't tell people what's going on. These are the people of God. Who better to tell when you're struggling with life? Christians, when you're struggling, there's problems going on in your life, you're you're bitter, you're angry, frustrated, who better to go to than the people of God? But what do we do? Fine. I'm just doing great. Most of us would die if we asked someone how they're doing and they responded like Naomi. Right? If the other person responded back and said... I'm not doing good. You'd go, I wish I hadn't asked that question. I wish I had went on by and never said a word. I won't ever do that again. Now, I'm not saying we should be one of those who shows up every week playing Eeyore, right? Everybody know who Eeyore is? Winnie the Pooh? 
But it should be perfectly okay to confess to God's people when we're struggling. Now, anyone says I'm bitter, she's asking for help. Can we ask each other for help? Who do we go to when we're hurting as Christians? We go to other Christians. How do we respond to fellow believers when they are bitter? How are we to think when we ourselves are bitter? Uh, Naomi's circumstances and our circumstances can influence us to develop a bitter attitude toward God, can it not? But we must be careful not to allow uh, circumstances to redirect our concept of God. We have a tendency to measure God's goodness by our immediate circumstances and our level of happiness, right? If everything's going good, God's good. If everything's going bad, God's not so good. We judge God's love and faithfulness by how many of our desires are getting met. When our desires are not met, we become bitter and angry. This reveals idols in our hearts. It's not God's will that we want, but our will made possible by God. We make God the servant of our agenda. We fail to trust God in our circumstances. We can be ruled by our circumstances instead of being ruled by the Lord of the circumstances. Here's the answer to your bitterness in difficult times. View your circumstances as a part of God's plan for your life. And see them as an opportunity for ministering to other people. Verse 22 tells us of God's faithfulness. We've got to hurry, don't we? Here's a word of hope. Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, excuse me, from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Famine, God's visited, and there's a harvest going on. Here's hope. There is bread in Bethlehem once again. There are times when we think God is far from us, but remember, He's always faithful to His people. He's always faithful. Naomi feels as if God's far away. Let's conclude with this. There, there's some characters in this story. And I told you what their names meant for a reason. How many of you are like Elimelech? In your head, my God is king, but if I ever need Him, I'll call on Him. I can handle things, but if anything should go wrong, I'll call on God when I need Him. But until I need Him, I'm just going to do my thing. God is my King. How many of you are like Orpah? You try new stuff, you give God some consideration, but you just move on to something else. How many of you are like Ruth? Full of faith. I am all in. I'm giving everything to following Christ. I mean, you're like Naomi, moody, bitter. All these people, all these are people that God loves deeply. And for no apparent reason, God loves me and you today. For no apparent reason at all, God loves us. All of us are like Elimelech. We've all wandered from God into a land of sin and idolatry. All of us are like Ruth, born in Moab, born in sin, dead in trespasses. We need a new birth. But God, through His grace in Jesus, makes us His own. Jesus died for our sin. Orpah opted for the way of the world instead of faith in God. Orpah missed God. On the other hand, there's Ruth, who chooses the gospel, the way to true life. Ruth threw herself on the mercy of God. An outsider. 
Like Ruth, we have nothing to offer God except our broken, sinful lives. Ruth, just as we should embrace our sinfulness and trust God. And that's the gospel today, folks. Sinful human beings come to the cross of Jesus. We come the way of dying to self and dying to our interests. And we come to Jesus with nothing except our need to be saved of our sin. Let's pray.